All right. All right, everyone, if you want to come back, find your seat. Come on in, grab a seat. So a couple more announcements as you're, as you're coming back to your seat. One, we do have a photo booth outside in the back patio. If you haven't had a chance to have your photo taken yet with family and friends, you can do that after the service. Um, don't leave in the middle of the sermon, then I'll feel bad if you want to do that. But, uh, that's out there. Uh, also, two more things. Uh, Next Sunday, we're having our uh, baby child dedication uh, here at Desert City. It's a time of just blessing and prayer uh, for our young families. We've had a number of babies born the last few months, and uh, we'll be doing that next week. The following Sunday, uh, the third Sunday in April, is our baptism celebration. And so uh, baptism for us is a public declaration that you've decided to follow Jesus. And uh, we have it out in the back patio. We bring a tank in. It's a super fun time to celebrate. If you're interested in either of those, uh, you can either talk to me or email info at desertcitychurch.com, and those are coming up over the next couple of weeks. Um, today we're, we're wrapping up a series on the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is a, an account of the life of Jesus, and there's four accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The, f the, the first three kind of go together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're very similar. They're called the synoptic Gospels. And John's a little bit different. And we spent some time over the last uh, eight weeks in John. And today we arrive at this day of resurrection. And I simply want to read through uh, this story. Because uh, I, I feel like John's such an expert storyteller that he just paints a beautiful picture of that day when it happened. But it's interesting, and when we're reading through John and we get to this kind of last part of the book of John that covers the last week of the life of Jesus and the resurrection, this character named Peter becomes very prominent. And we know a little bit about Peter, and we've seen him in the gospel stories, but all of a sudden this week, this last week of Jesus' life, uh, Peter experiences it in, in such an, a unique way of what happens with Jesus. And Peter uh, becomes this great leader in the early church, and, and later on in his life he writes a letter about this week and this day of what happened. And I want to open with Peter's words as he's writing this letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 5, he says this, Praise be to God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. From the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's writing a letter and he opens with these words, praise be to God, who has given us this new birth, this living hope through the resurrection of the dead. He's experienced this great mercy. I think what's interesting is as Peter's writing about this resurrection, uh, what we find is that Peter has experienced something. Peter has seen this with his own eyes. He's witnessed it. Not many were able to, but he did. Peter, Peter explains that he actually saw this happen, that he knew Jesus. He watched Jesus die, and he experienced Jesus after death as Jesus appears. 
when he comes out of the grave. And there's something that happens in Peter's life. It changes him. And when we think about the words that Peter writes, this idea of great mercy, new birth, to a living hope that's through the resurrection, these are the words of transformation. Something inside Peter has been transformed. This is Peter, Peter the fisherman from Galilee, the fisherman who would become a saint. This is Peter who is called the rock on which, on which Christ would build his church. This is Peter, the one who walked on water for a little bit and then sunk. This is Peter who would uh, often get in trouble, who would often act before thinking. And this is Peter who was uh, very bold in his faith. As we've been reading through the Gospel of John, uh, last week we, we came to the Last Supper. And at the Last Supper, we have the story of the foot washing, the story of the stinky feet that we talked about last week where Jesus demonstrates his love for his disciples and, and he prays for his disciples and he prays for, for all of us. And as we kind of turn the corner of that Last Supper, what happens is Jesus, Jesus gets arrested pretty quickly after that. And we kind of read through some of that story last week. And in chapter 18, something else happens. In chapter 18, Jesus gets arrested. But as he's getting arrested, Peter tries to stop What's happening? He pulls out a sword. He chops off someone's ear trying to stop Jesus. It's pretty gruesome. I can't imagine what that would look like. It's an unbelievable shot in the first place by Peter to get that. But <laughs> Jesus stops him. Jesus stops him and repairs the man's ear. He says, those who live by the sword die by the sword. It's like that famous line. From there, Peter runs away. Jesus gets arrested. Uh, some of the disciples follow in chapter 18. Jesus, as he, as he goes in, being arrested. And we know in that story that, that Peter's kind of waiting kind of outside, and they invite him in. And there's this moment where Peter can, can come in, but he knows this is now a dangerous situation. And what we find is that Peter denies that he knows Jesus. He acts like he doesn't know what people are talking about. They say, no, we saw you. We know that you were with him. You're one of the disciples. And Jesus, Peter says, no, 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 no. That wasn't me. I don't know who you're talking about. One of the people that identifies Jesus or Peter is related to the guy that has his ear chopped off. And he says, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's you. I don't forget something like that. <laughs> and Peter goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. And we know how the story goes. Peter denies that he knows Jesus three times. And then a rooster crows. And he re he's reminded that Jesus said that this would happen. And it's this very kind of dark moment for Peter where he, he denies Christ. He's afraid. There's a failure of nerve with Peter. One of the reasons I love to hear Peter's story of the resurrection is because I feel like Peter, his humanity is on display. In Peter, I see a lot of myself, these ups and downs, these roller coasters of his experience and relationship with Jesus. And then when the pressure gets on, I see him failing. I see him denying Christ. I often think, that's probably someone I can relate to. This is someone who uh, is closer to Jesus than maybe anyone. And yet, when the heat is on, we see him fail. I often think of my life, how I often deny him, deny Christ by my lifestyle. I often uh, think of my own agenda first. When it comes to my own reputation or things that will put me in harm's way, it's a lot easier 
uh, to cower away. For Peter, this is an act of cowardice. And yet at the same time, there's something here that we see in the life of Peter that says there's very, something human about what he's experienced. This is a real story with real people who experience real emotions. Peter has this moment where he denies Christ. The story gets very dark. And as Jesus is arrested and he goes to the cross and he goes to his death, you might think this could be the final scene for Peter, that he sees Christ going to the cross and he's already kind of walked away. This great moment of failure. But I think this is what makes the cross so interesting. And as we know how the story turns out, we can look at it kind of from our side of the, of the story. But Jesus goes to the cross for Peter. He says, Peter, I know that you have fallen short. I know that you have denied me. I know that you have failed in this way. And yet Jesus still goes to the cross for Peter. The story of the washing of the disciples' feet. We have this Jesus who's about to put his love on display for the disciples. And he says, this is how much I love you. This is how much God loves you. That he knows that one of his friends is going to betray him to his death, and he knows that his best friend is going to deny him, and he washes their feet anyway. The story of the cross is the story of this great mercy. That this God who knows everything about Peter still says, I love you so much, I'll die for you. This is a story of great mercy. Great mercy. Peter describes the cross with these words in his letter. He says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. The cross is this great mercy that Peter talks about. Romans 5, 6-8, another writer says this, You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And very rarely would anyone die for a righteous person, though a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When Peter's writing later on in life, he starts talking about this great mercy, and as he starts to understand the sacrifice of Jesus, he says, I denied Christ. In that same day, he died for me. In the next moment, he died for me. There's this great mercy on display. And what John wants us to know is that Jesus loves all of us, no matter what we've done. Whether we've betrayed him, denied him, Jesus' love is for us all. This is this great mercy. It's kind of like you hear the word mercy. Does it really need the word great in front of it, right? I mean, mercy is mercy. Yet God gives us mercy in this moment on the cross. And Peter speaks of this great mercy and this living hope. This living hope that he has. And this is the story I really want to get to. It's the story of the resurrection in John chapter 20. And I feel like hope is on display here in Peter and in all the disciples. John 20 verse 1 says... Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. 
So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started toward the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Let's stop real quick. So the other disciple isn't named because the other disciple is the person telling the story. So we know that it's John. And John puts in this interesting detail. When you think about what's happening this day, they're running to the tomb in anticipation. And John wants us to know this, that Jesus is rising from the dead and that he's faster than Peter. <laughs> the disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And he bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who came like minutes later, right? Then Simon Peter came behind him and went straight to the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and he believed. And I think this is interesting. Like, why, why throw in those details of, like, you know, I outran him? Why throw in the details of, and he got there behind me, and he came and looked but then after I came in and looked, I believed. I think it's really interesting because the last scene that we've seen with Peter is him denying Christ. And now there's this possibility that something has happened with the body of Christ. And I'm sure the disciples in their mind are, they, they, they know that Jesus was giving hints of this, this foreshadowing of this, that he was going to rise from the dead. They didn't really understand what was going to happen or if it was actually going to happen. But Peter and John are sprinting to the tomb. Peter like, I'm thinking if he just denied Christ and Christ has risen from the dead, there's going to be kind of an awkward exchange coming. And yet Peter is running to the tomb with John. They can't wait to see it. There's just this hope. Can't help to think that Peter has spent great time with Jesus. He knows the character of Jesus. He knows what he's like. And his hope here is in Jesus. In this story, hope becomes a person. It becomes the risen Christ. Peter talks about great mercy in his letter and living hope. Maybe he should talk, maybe the better phrase is hope that is alive. This Jesus who is risen from the dead, Peter is hoping, anticipating, pursuing the grave to see it. No matter what Peter has done to Jesus, there's this hope that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is love transforms Peter's iniquity. It's interesting to think about this idea of resurrection. There's a lot that can be said of it. It's the new creation. It's the new man. It's, it's what we can anticipate as we look forward to eternity, our bodies restored and made perfect. It's interesting as we reflect on Good Friday, I, I read an article this week that I feel like just captured this picture of what resurrection does for us. And this this article was written in the Washington Post by, uh, in the opinion section by Michael Garrison. And I just want to read some of this for you as we think of this living hope that we have in this moment of resurrection. Michael Garrison says, at this point in the story, it's almost as though the cynics somehow lost control of the narrative. It had been dark, denial, betrayal, death. And at this point in the story, the cynics somehow lost control of the narrative. There was an empty tomb and wild reports of angels and ghosts, and a claim of resurrection. Even those who believe the body was moved must confront certain facts. 
faith in the figure who Rome executed has far outlasted the Roman Empire. These cowardly friends became bold missionaries, most of them dying torturous deaths, according to tradition, for the sake of a figure that they once betrayed in their sleep. The faith thus founded has given the mob, all of us, even those who mock, especially even those who mock, hope for pardon and peace. Living hope for pardon and peace. For believers, the complete story of Good Friday and Easter legitimizes both despair and faith, as we see in Peter. Nearly every life features less than Good Fridays. We grow tired of our own company and the travel we travel descending path of depression. We experience lonely pain, unearned suffering, or stinging injustice. We are rejected or betrayed by a friend. And then there are unspeakable things. The death of a child, the diagnosis of an aggressive cancer, the steady advance of a disease that will take our minds and dignity. We look into the, bit, the abyss of self-murder, and yet, eventually, or so we trust, or so we try to trust that God is forever on the side of those who suffer. God is forever on the side of life. God is forever on the side of hope, this living hope. And if the resurrection is real, death's hold is broken. There's a truth in human existence that cannot be contained in a tomb. It is possible to live lightly even in the face of death, not by becoming hard and strong, but through a confident perseverance. Because cynicism, because cynicism is the failure of patience. And because Good Friday does not have the final word. Love these words about the resurrection. What Peter experiences, the way that Peter fails, yet runs to the tomb with living hope because resurrection changes everything. This great mercy that he experiences on the cross, this living hope of the resurrection where death and sin are conquered. And then he speaks of this new life that begins. Peter's letter writes to people to tell them about the resurrection. He says there's this great mercy, there's this new life, and there's this living hope. If you look at the, the literal translation for new life, it means being born again, a rebirth, a new start, a transformation into something new. Peter says this new birth takes place in the resurrection. After Jesus rises from the dead, he appears to the disciples in many different ways. But there's an interesting story in John 21 where Peter's a fisherman, he goes back out on the lake with some of the disciples, and Jesus shows up, and he's sitting on the lakeside. He tells them to cast their nets. There's this miraculous catch of fish. John decides to put this story in here. He's telling us a bunch of different things. But they come back to the shore, and Jesus invites them to breakfast. That, that's wonderful. He says, come have breakfast with me, the risen Christ. Those are his words. And they start having this conversation, and Jesus pulls Peter aside, and at this point, it's like, is this where the awkward exchange is going to happen? And Peter and Jesus are talking. And Jesus asks Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, of course, I love you. I mean, I ran to the tomb. Maybe not as fast as John, but I ran. <laughs> Jesus says, a response, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Ask him again, Peter, do you love me? Of course, of course, I love you. Same thing, feed my sheep. Ask him a third time, Peter, do you love me? And at that moment, Peter realizes what Jesus is doing. He's denied Jesus three times, 
and Jesus is now reinstating him. And there's this number three where he's saying, I'm bringing you back into this, but I want to know where you're at. I want to know what your response is going to be. Do you love me? And then he gives him instructions from there. He gives Peter calling to do something with his life. The resurrection changes everything for Peter because it transforms all of the ways that he's fallen short. And he's given this glorious calling. He goes from this failing disciple who's a fisherman to becoming a saint. This calling that God gives him. This week I was reading through a book by this pastor named Dave Ferguson. Dave wrote a book called Finding Our Way Back to God. And he brings up this story about this uh, young girl named Elizabeth Smart. Some of you remember the story of Elizabeth Smart. I completely forgot about it until reading through this. She was this young girl in Utah, uh, actually grew up in a Mormon family, and she was abducted at the age of 14. She was kidnapped back in the early 2000s. She was kidnapped in, from her own home, from her own bed. The next day, the, the father, Elizabeth's father, gets up. The news reporters are all there, and he, he talks into the microphone, into the media for all to see. He says, Elizabeth, we love you. We are looking for you. We're doing everything in our power to find you. Don't give up. And yet they can't find her. They can't find her for weeks. They can't find her for month. Month after month, all of the neighbors have said, she's gone, she's dead. They're not going to find her. She's just, it's, it's time to give up hope. And yet the family knew, it just doesn't feel like she's dead. We, we know she's out there somewhere. The search continues. Eventually they get different TV shows involved, America's Most Wanted. Finally, one day, nine months later, she's found. And the details of how she's found are so interesting to me. Because she's been captive for nine months. And at first it starts off with just horrendous, unspeakable things that are done to this young woman. But then something also happens as you've been held captive. This thing called Stockholm Syndrome sets in and you become empathetic towards your captive, captors. And we don't know what's going on in her mind, but we know that she's been basically brainwashed for about nine months. And she's been captured close to home and she's walking around on streets and frequenting restaurants not far from her family, completely like brainwashed of what's happening. And the police this whole time have been searching for her. And they get this tip that there's this girl that looks like Elizabeth Smart that's standing on the street. And this cop goes up to her and he kind of sees the two captives, the two people, and says, this is looking pretty suspicious. So he starts this conversation with Elizabeth kind of, hi, how are you? What's your name? Where are you from? And they're going back and forth and going back and forth. And Elizabeth finally says this. She says, I know what you're thinking. You think I'm Elizabeth Smart. I get that sometimes. But I'm not her. I'm sorry. The cop realizes it's got to be her. And he notices that she's wearing a wig, so we asked her about the wig, and she says, oh, no, this is my real hair color. And they keep talking back and forth. And the cop realizes that time's running out. These captors are coming back. They're trying to separate the captors from her, but he's got to have her talk about it. So finally he looks at her and he says, Elizabeth, I know it's you. I know that your name is Elizabeth Smart. And I want you to know your family's looking for you. The cops are looking for you. The whole nation's looking for you. And he pulls out a picture and he shows her. And something and her mind switches. It's like she wakes up from a dream. And she says, thou sayeth. Basically saying, you're right, it is me. 
And at that moment, the cops are able to take her. They're able to detain the two kidnappers. They call the parents, and there's this reuniting of the family. This unbelievable story. And what they find is that she was terrified to come out and say, this is me, because they threatened to kill her. They threatened to kill her parents, her, her sister. She's completely brainwashed. And then she admits, yeah, it's me. Help. They're able to save her. When I think about the story of Jesus, the story of the cross, the resurrection. Jesus comes into this world, and he knows our name. He knows our true identity. We're humans created in the image of God. And yet we've been walking through this life captivated by certain things, captured by certain things that rob us of our identity, that put wigs on our heads, that, that make us live the life that we weren't designed to live. And the story of the resurrection is that God became man. He showed up. He called us by name. And he offered us life that was truly life. This is the story of the gospel. And all of us come to this decision, come to this moment where we can say, thou sayest. There's this response where we say, yes, Lord, save me. Get me out of the situation. Give me life that is truly life, the life that you've designed me to live, the life that is eternal. And Peter knows this. As he's writing to people about the story of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, he talks about great mercy to a living hope and new birth. This is the story of Easter. God knows our name, and he calls us to return to this life that is truly life, life that is eternal, life that isn't separated from him. Today for Easter, we celebrate this. The band's going to come back up, and we're going to, we do something that's symbolic of this story called communion. Communion for us represents this incarnation of God. Jesus came to earth, and his body was broken on the cross. And we take a piece of bread that represents that, and we're told to remember this story and proclaim it. And then we take a cup of juice that represents this blood that has been shed on the cross that that washes away our sin, and it washes away our brokenness, and it washes away all the things that we've been hurt or hurt others by. Through the death and resurrection, all of our sin is restored to something new and glorious. There's this transformation that takes place. So in a few moments, we're going to take communion to remember that and proclaim it. But then we also come to this moment of decision and I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you've experienced. I don't know what you've gone through or what story or narratives you have about God. But maybe today you need to experience great mercy. This God who offers us life and offers us this gift of life is a merciful God. Maybe today you need to experience hope, hope that's alive, hope that gives light into the darkness. And maybe today you need to experience a rebirth. I don't know where you're at today. But the invitation is to respond with this word, thou sayest, Lord. Yes, save me. As Tim comes back up, we'll take some moment, moments to uh, reflect. And then uh, we'll have him close us. But let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this story. The story of Peter.
but really the story of you. Lord, that it doesn't matter what Peter does. It matters what you do on the cross. We're made whole, we're made new, we're made alive. We're offered life that is life eternal. Lord, I just ask that you would speak to our hearts today, that you would nudge us, that the things that have captured us, the things that have enslaved us, Lord, it'd be like waking up from a dream, that you would call us by name, that you would return us to relationship with you, our Heavenly Father. Lord, we're so grateful for the story of resurrection, that we know that death doesn't have the final word. Good Friday doesn't have the final word. But there's hope. There's life. There's restoration and healing. Lord, we give you this time. We remember what you've done. And we proclaim it. You are alive. Amen. Amen.